Praise the Lord and welcome to uh, the concluding session, session 10 of the study of apostolic church structure for end time revival and harvest or if you prefer the revelation of the care ministry. In session 9, we uh, did a summary of the different uh, points of the benefits of the care ministry to the pastor, to the local church, to the people, to the lost, to the new convert, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a very valuable and uh, important lesson. Here in Lesson 10, uh, I'm not going to talk as much specifically about care ministry or church structure. I really want to conclude by talking about the conscious and subconscious mental, emotional, and spiritual barriers to us being able to receive this revelation and implement it. There is a common barrier. It's a common barrier. It's terminology that we don't really prefer to hear or talk about, but I'm afraid that I am going to talk about it. I pray that you're able to receive it today in Jesus' name. The barrier is religious tradition. And yes, we Pentecostals, we Apostolics, we have religious traditions. I remember being a child and going back to visit my where my dad was in the Navy. So we'd go home occasionally to, to their home and visit both parents, both sets of parents. And my mother's family was in the church, and so we would go to church with her. And I remember sitting there as a child, eight, nine, ten years old, and um, there were people that looked vis like visitors to me, sinners. And we sat there on Sunday morning, and we had uh, penny marches for missions. They had a little tin pie plate, and people would come and drop their pennies in the pie plate for missions and uh, they called it a penny march for missions I didn't understand that and then the other thing I didn't understand is they would empty the offering out of that for missions and then they would have everybody come up that had a birthday that week and then they would stand there and let that person drop pennies in the plate you could hear each one as they hit the pie plan pie, the bottom of the pie pan and uh, we would everybody would count those numbers of pennies and then they would if it was a birthday, oh, happy birthday to you, we'd sing. Oh, happy birthday to you, you maybe feel Jesus dear every day of the year, et cetera. And then for all those that had anniversary, and they, the husband and wife would come up if they were both there, one or the other, if it's just one, and then they would drop the pennies in the plate for the anniversary. And then when that was done, they'd sing, oh, happy anniversary to you, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember as a child sitting there thinking, here there's visitors present. This whole process is taking 10, 15, 20 minutes out of an hour and a half, two-hour service. And if I was a visitor sitting here, would I really believe these people were interested in my soul? Or were they more interested in their little program or format? In the denominal world, it's called liturgy. A liturgy, liturgy is simply a prescribed format for any particular type of religion that tells exactly how they're going to go about and have church. 
And of course, the more formal denominal churches, they have their liturgy all printed out. And sometimes it's put in their bulletin. Sometimes it's in the books in the back of their seats. And they look at that and they, and they know what comes next and they go through that. Well, in my lifetime of being raised in Pentecost, we had a liturgy too. We didn't call it that. In fact, we would have resisted strongly if it had been called that. But we, everybody knew what was coming next. We knew we were going to three, sing three songs, verses and chorus, out of Pentecostal praises, the red hymn book. And then we were going to, uh, we were going to have a, a testimony service, and we were going to have prayer requests, and we were going to have an offering, an announcement. Preachers were going to preach. We'd have some kind of an altar call. And then we'd be done, and we could go home. And sometimes there'd be a, on Sunday night there'd be a choir number or Sunday morning there might be a special song interspersed in there. But we knew that too because there almost always was a choir number or a special song in the same spot. And we did it the same way all the time. It was all the same. And the elements of all that may have changed, but it's pretty much the same idea in most churches. I've gone places where they had it all written out. Now, we're going to sing this song here. We're going to do this here. We're going to do this. We're going to do this here. And, and, and we're all going to march in at the same time. We're going to do all this. And, and I'm going liturgy. Liturgy. Well, my question is this. Is that really biblical? Or is that tradition? Is that just practicing the program of religious tradition? Or is that really a biblical way to have church? Now, we put Azusa Street on a pedestal. But how many people really want to have church like Azusa Street did? Because they didn't have a liturgy. Well, it's not just our church services and our format for services. Now, how we do that, that is controlled by religious tradition. Now, I don't think heritage is bad until heritage becomes a just a nice name for religious tradition or the attitudes, we've always done it this way. And that statement implies, why should it change? In the last lesson I said, I'm going to say it again. There are four things that control, that influence the church fulfilling its mission to preach the gospel to the lost. God, my message, me, and my methods. Only those first two are eternal. The last two are not. Only those first two are unchangeable. The last two are not. God is God. He cannot change. And who He is, and the doctrine of who he is, that cannot change. Can't change fit people because they don't like it or because most everybody else doesn't believe it exactly like that. But it's whatever the Bible says, that's the way it's got to be and it can't change no matter what. Big church, small church, rich people, poor people, educated, uneducated. No matter what color, no matter what culture, it's the same God. And the doctrine of that God is the same. And the, the message, the plan of salvation, how to get saved, how to live saved. That cannot change. That's got to be consistent. But me, me, if I'm still doing today what I've always done, I'm dead. I'm not growing at all. And my methods, huh, the music I grew up with, it was considered worldly when the church started singing it. 
because the church pretty much only sang hymns until Holy Ghost filled people began to write songs. Well, a lot of those songs sounded like the modern music of that day. There's a Hawaiian song, Aloha Oi. I sang that many times with the words, He's coming soon, He's coming soon. Or, uh, O Solo Mio, with the words, Down from His glory, ever living story. We've done that for years. I played the trumpet in church. I had people say, well, that style of music is blues or jazz or whatever it would be. We've changed it over the years. Music has changed dramatically just in my lifetime. Music in the church. But every little bit of change has been fought and condemned by whatever. I had to make up my mind as a pastor, a leader, not only of our local church, but of other churches in our district. I had to make up my mind. Go to youth functions, you hear them sing songs I'd never heard before. The bottom line was this. Can I hear the message? And does the message exalt the name of Jesus and exalt the Lord, exalt Him as God, etc., etc.? Whether the style of music the way it's sung, uh, the loudness of it, the instruments that are played, whether i that's my style, my taste or not, it's not the issue. The message is what makes it scriptural. But there are people that would be hearing this right now that think I'm a compromiser. Well, I remember when the music we played in the 50s was a compromise. I remember when the Lanny Wolf style music came along. Everybody said that was compromised. That's out of date now. I said all that in a, to preface the fact that religious tradition probably keeps tabs on and binds structure and methodology more than any other part of our faith. That's what it wants to suppress. Because the adversary knows that as long as he can keep us preaching truth, but through a traditional vehicle, that it will never be as effective as the Lord intended to be. Because it's truth, there are some people getting saved. Thank God for that. Because it's truth. But how many more would be saved if we were doing the biblical methods, follow the biblical approach, using the Lord's concepts instead of religion. How many more, more people? Let me give you an illustration of this. <clears throat> Second Kings 18, verses 1 through 4, tells the story of King Hezekiah, who was wanting to bring Israel out of complete idolatry and bring them back to the Lord. Listen to this. Second Kings 18, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old. He was only 25 years old. Was he when he began to reign? And he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Iba, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, 
according to all that his father had, that David his father did. Listen now. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves. All of that was to destroy idolatry. But listen to what he did different than all of his predecessors. And break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those day, unto that time, unto those days, the children of Israel did burn incense to it, but Hezekiah called it Nehushtan. Nehushtan means, from the Hebrew, just a piece of brass. What do you mean, just a piece of brass? That's the serpent that Moses, that God told Moses to make. And God told him to put that serpent, that brazen serpent on a pole and hold it up. And when the plague of the fiery serpents came against Israel because of their sin, every person that was bitten by one of those serpents that looked and looked upon that brazen serpent lived. What a miracle of deliverance because they looked on that brazen serpent. And from that point, there is no record anywhere in the Scripture where anybody's life was spared ever again after that period of time by looking on that brazen serpent. But because it worked one time, it was the will of God one time, and it worked one time. Israel burned incense to it through, all, through the rest of the life of Moses, through the life of Joshua, through all the judges, Gideon and all of them, through the great Samuel, the life of the great prophet Samuel, through the life of King David and other, and Solomon and all of them, all of those great men of God allowed Israel to burn incense to that brazen snake because one time it was the will of God to do that. It was the will of God to make that snake one time and it was the will of God that people going through that plague would be spared death from being bitten by those poisonous snakes if they looked on that brazen serpent. And Hezekiah in a desire to purge Israel from all idolatry. He threw all the stuff of Baal out. He threw all the stuff of Ashtoreth out and all that stuff. He got rid of all those obvious things of idolatry. But then he looks in the house of God. And he and it just came to him. There, we're, we've been burning incense to this snake for hundreds of years. He realized that they had made, Israel had made an idol, a false god, even though nobody saw it like that. They made an idol out of that brazen serpent because God used it one time. And it wasn't the serpent that spared any of those people's lives. It was, their, it was Moses' obedience in making it and their obedience in looking at it that caused God to spare them. But instead of giving God the glory, instead of telling what God did all those years, they burned incense to the method rather than giving glory to the God who used the method to save people's lives. I'm 66 years old. I've been in Pentecost, apostolic Pentecost, since the first day I was born.
and you hear me right now, we got a bunch of serpents that God used once. Bunch of things that God used one time. He used them. It really happened. It was really God. But he hasn't really done it like that again. But we're still trying to make it work even though he's not blessing it anymore. Or at the very least, we're still paying homage to it as our heritage and burning incense to it. And we've made it idolatry. And we hold everything else we're doing up to that standard. This is the way God did it. He did it one time like that. I'm not fixing to step out of a boat and walk on water. The Lord said to Peter, come. I haven't heard him say that to me. I'm not going to get out of the boat and try to walk on I'm not going to get out in the middle of Chesapeake Bay here and try to get out of the boat and walk on water because Peter did it. Because the Lord hadn't told me to do that. Do I believe Peter walked on the water? Yes, I do. Do I believe Jesus walked on the water? Yes, I do. Do I believe the Lord used Moses to part the Red Sea? Yeah. But if there was a, bit, a bridge problem here, and I had to cross the Severn River of the Chesapeake Bay, I'm not going to go stand on the bank where I need to get across and hold a stick out there waiting for it to part. Do I believe all of that was God? It absolutely was God. But he hadn't told me to do that like that. And until he, until he tells me what to do and how to do it, I'm not doing that. But that's not the way we operate. We do one of two things. We either continue to try to make work what somebody else has all worked for them a long time ago. I mean, brush arbors worked back then. I see people building big, beautiful buildings. I don't see anybody building a brush arbor out there because it worked one time. That's our heritage. My wife played the accordion when we first got uh, married. We, we evangelized. She played the accordion. But by the time we came off the field, she learned to play the organ. I don't remember the last time she's ever played the accordion. Certainly not publicly. Do I believe she still could? Yeah. But we switched. We changed. Why? That's what she felt that was the will of God for her to do. She'd had piano lessons. She learned to play the accordion. But while we evangelized, she'd spend her time in church in their church building with, where, if they had an organ, and she learned to play the organ. She got to where that's what she felt most comfortable doing and felt like she could do best for the glory of God. She didn't adamantly stick with the piano or adamantly stick with the, the accordion. I remember first coming here as a pastor. Potomac River is the border of the Bible Belt. Trust me, you come on the north side of the Potomac River, you are not in the Bible Belt anymore. But here I am, I've been raised in church all my life. Sunday morning is kind of a just a church, Sunday school and church. And Sunday night is the evangelistic service. Well, these people here were so ignorant, they came to church on Sunday morning, I couldn't get them out to Sunday night to preach evangelistic to them. I was so frustrated, I was complaining to God. I was complaining to God. I'd preach some, some saint-type message on Sunday morning with them sitting there because that's what had, had been done all my life. And then Sunday night was evangelistic, and we were trying to have an evangelistic service, and there wasn't any sinner showing up. And I complained to God, complained to God about it. Finally, he said to me, don't you think you ought to preach to sinners when they're here? Well, years later, and it took, unfortunately, years, I realized, wait a minute. Almost all the people we're reaching were either raised in Catholicism, 
or formal Protestantism. And if they had church, went to church, they went to church on Sunday morning. These people didn't understand about anything about going to church on Sunday night. So therefore, if they were going to visit our service, it's going to be Sunday morning. So after a while, I got the message. And we started, started full blast at 10 a.m., singing, praying, shouting, dancing, and then I'd preach evangelistic. And it was working. Well, we had a couple of older ministers come visit our church. They saw what we were doing and said, yeah, this, is, this is dangerous now. It's dangerous to change this. I'm serious. It's dangerous to change this. Because they'd never seen a, church, a Pentecostal church have an evangelistic service on Sunday morning. Well, <laughs> there was nothing in the Bible that says you have evangelistic service on Sunday morning. I mean, on Sunday night, and you, you preach to the church with Sunday school on Sunday morning. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. But that's the way it, was, it had always been done. And so when these senior ministers, and I was a young guy, when they came by and saw what I was doing, they warned me. This is dangerous business here. And yet, when, we, when I started preaching to them on Sunday morning, it was amazing the number of people that got saved. Why was it like that? It was like that because we'd always done it that way. And that little change at Antioch to this day, regardless of whatever ministry is, if it's on Sunday morning, it's expected to be evangelistic. Evangelistic. Sunday night, most of the time we're preaching to the church because there just won't be that very many visitors this day. It is much harder to get visitors to come on Sunday night or any night service than it is on Sunday morning. The only people that we get to come on Sunday night usually are those who are so committed to their Sunday morning service, if they really want to visit us, they're not going to miss their service to do it. They may come on Sunday night. But that's not that, there's not that many. As a church and as a rule, we've had three to four to five times as many visitors on Sunday morning in any given week than we ever have on Sunday night or whenever. But I had elders warn me about this change because we'd never done it that way. In 1982, when I started sharing with people the revelation God gave me of the care ministry, because of all the people we had prayed through, we, hadn't been, we weren't able to hold them with traditional church structure, just having church and people coming, hearing the preacher preach. They told me this was dangerous. That it, Some actually called me charismatic. Even though everything I was teaching, everything I got, everything I practiced was straight out of the book. I wasn't taking it out of anybody else's book. I, got, I was getting it from the book. But religious tradition resisted it. Now, I'm not upset or bitter. Well, the point I'm trying to make to you, and the reason I'm making this point so strongly is this. If you're watching this, and you've made it to this session, individually or as a church, you've got to be really hungry. You've got to be really desperate for the help of the Lord to do something. 
if you've made it through all of these sessions, the stuff I've taught, some of the strong things I've had to say, if you've made it this far, this part, you, you've, you've got to be, you've got to be serious. You've got to be sincere. You've got to be hungry. So what's the blockage? Why is there still a reluctance? Why do you still feel a reluctance? Why is there a little bit of uncomfortableness with it? Why, why, why is there actually some fear with it? That's the spirit of religious tradition. It's the spirit of religious tradition. Let me, let me read to you what the scripture says. Uh, Jesus said about religious tradition. This is Matthew chapter 15, beginning with verse 5. Or I'll start with verse 1. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But Jesus answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Huh? So tradition's not harmless, Jesus? That's what we want to say. Well, you know, it may not be exactly the way they did in the Bible, but it's not a problem. We've always done it this way. It, all, it seems to be okay. Jesus said, it's possible to transgress the commandment of God by your tradition. How about the commandment that says, go ye into all the world, but we stand up and tell people to come. Is, is that a transgression? Is that a violation of the word of God? At the very least, it's not preaching specifically what the word of God says. And then he continued, verse 4. For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curses father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And honor, honor not his father and his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. What if God really does have an, a plan? A plan he gave to the apostles and that they used to great efficiency and effect. What if there really is an apostolic concept? If there really are apostolic principles for church and how to reach the lost and how to take care of, uh, uh, of, of spiritual newborns. What if there really is an apostolic way of doing that? Is it possible that we're making God's methods of none effect by sticking with our methods? I, I'm sorry. I'm not a novice. I've been doing this a few days. There are men, much, much better men than me, who are much better Christians than I am, who have been in their cities reasonably close, longer or shorter to the length of time I've been here. And they don't have near what we have here. Is God unjust, unfair? Men who pray, men who preach, men who love God, men who love the lost, at least as much, if not more than me. Is God a respecter of persons? Or, if the, or is the problem not 
one preacher's a better preacher or a better man than the other one. But it's the difference that one church is using non-traditional but biblical apostolic principles and concepts of ministry for the local church. And the other one is dotting the I's and crossing the T's of how we've always done it, which we didn't get out of the book. You study church history the last 500 years, you see how God brought us step by step out of the dark ages, out of false doctrine. The just shall live by faith. Baptism should be in the name, should be by immersion. There should be a conversion experience. Little by little. Should receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. You should receive the oneness of God. Or believe the oneness of God. When did we stop coming out of darkness? When? Why did we stop coming out of darkness? Azusa Street wasn't operated according to any traditional pattern. The, The camp meeting in which the first public message that we know of, where baptism in Jesus' name was preached, they weren't operating that like we operate our camp meetings. The man that preached that message, he wasn't on an agenda. He wasn't invited to, okay, you got this hour. They were praying. They waited on God. God said to the elders over that meeting, have him preach. They didn't have a schedule. They didn't have all this thing planned out, mapped out. They, they waited on God. They listened to God. We don't do that. That's our heritage, but we don't do it. We've gone back to this, this thing that is the way all the denominal world does it. Okay, so we don't do it exactly like them, but in principle we do exactly what they do. We handle it just like they do. Well, you know, it's not working. So Jesus said, he said, thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. And I'm not saying this to anybody listening here. I'm reading what Jesus said. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you say, this people draw nigh unto me with their mouth and, their, and, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Listen carefully here. This is the end result of tradition. But in vain do they worship me. Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. I wonder how many of the things that we've added to the message. Even personal convictions that were truly from God. That we've turned into doctrines. Methods that we judge everybody else by. Who says singing is supposed to be first? Who says the altar call is supposed to be at the end? Who says you're supposed to take prayer requests where people just raise their hands and everybody pray a mass prayer? Who says it's supposed to be like that? Who says there even has to be a testimony service in church? Who says any of those things are the way they have to be? And we practice most all of that, at least some of the time. But shouldn't God be in control? Shouldn't God have the prerogative, the right? Doesn't he have the right to tell us 
what to do, how to do it, when to do it, in any given time we get together, shouldn't he be able to do that? If it's not, we risk turning people's worship into vanity. He said, in vain they do worship me. The word vain there means empty, useless, worthless. Now, this is strong stuff. You make the word of God of none effect. You transgress the, God, uh, uh, the commandment of God by your tradition. And people's worship is made vain. How can religious tradition be viewed as being neutral? Go to Mark chapter 7 and read what he said about it there. It's a, a fairly parallel passage. But he says the same kind of stuff. In fact, he, he's got a few things he added there. Religious tradition is not okay. Pastor, leaders, make up your mind. You're going to go back to the book, just the book, and study it for yourself. Read how they did it, what they did. Seek God. Why should one Sunday night service be exactly the same as the next Sunday night service? Why should they? Now, I believe overall it's acceptable to have some kind of service schedule as long as it's not all focused around a facility. As long as it incorporates in the structure and in the methods sending people out to preach to the lost, to take care of the lost sheep or the lambs. I believe that's all acceptable to the Lord. I believe it's acceptable. And I believe he'll bless it. But we have to know in here that what we're doing and what we're teaching, what we're saying, how we're practicing it, God has given it to us for us. Nowadays, all kind of things have changed. I've preached in churches that have an afternoon service. I've preached in places that only have a Sunday morning service. Or, and I've preached in some that start in the morning, go till early afternoon, that's all they do. I've preached in some that still have a midweek and have care groups, some that only have care groups, some that only have midweek, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we are seeing more and more where people are doing what they feel is best for their local situation. I don't have any problem with that as long as they're getting that from God. As long as they're getting that from God, I have no problem with that. I don't believe somebody has to do it or should even try to do it like we do it here. We're doing here what God gave us to do here. Here. That doesn't mean the way we do it here. The method or the application of the principle that we have here is the way God wants you to do it in your place. You learn the principles. You learn the concepts. God has got principles and patterns and he does not change those. He doesn't violate them, doesn't vary them, and they don't change by culture or time. But the application of those patterns, principles and patterns, those concepts, in any specific location, in any specific time, may appear to be very different. I'm not talking about doctrine. I'm not talking about separation. I'm not talking about the oneness of God. I'm talking about method. Whatever method he uses for us to preach the law. Paul ministers sometimes from a jail. 
Paul ministered to other places where he rented a house. People came to him. Other places he went to the synagogue. There were places he ministered where he didn't receive offerings. He participated in making tents to earn his own income because he wouldn't. He refused to take any money from them because he wasn't going to let them take credit for being his support. Other places he wrote to them and said, "How come you aren't supporting me? How come I'm, why am I not receiving anything from you?" It was never the same. It varied in each situation depending on what that group of people needed. And Paul allowed himself to be used by God in whatever specific way necessary in each one of those situations. So, the first thing you have to do is you have to determine what are the principles and patterns of God. And does he have principles and patterns and concepts that are apostolic, that are in the book of Acts, New Testament church. And then how does God want those applied? Not how do we think it would be best to apply them, but how does God want us to apply them in our local situation? How? That's what you've got. Those are the questions you've got to answer. Those are the questions you've got to answer. The expectations created by religious tradition must be overcome if we are to be prepared to accommodate the results of the outpouring of the Spirit which has been promised. It is always difficult to discard traditions that have been practiced a long time. In addition, so many of us have brought the traditions of our previous religious affiliations into the truth, and we've incorporated them because we were comfortable with them then. We've changed our method. We've put new wine in old wineskins. When you put new wine in old wineskins, Something tragic is going to happen. Maybe not Im- immediately, but it will happen. It is going to happen. I acknowledge to you that the care ministry concept dashes to pieces. Some Pentecostal traditions, just like Hezekiah, broke that raisin serpent in pieces and called it just a piece of bread. The apostles met in the Jewish temples and in private homes. Acts 2.46. Are both those dimensions evident and operating in your local church? However you choose to do that, whatever you choose to call it, that's not even the issue. I've said many times, we call it care ministry, you can call it whatever you want. Life, some call them life groups now. It used to be called cell groups, home fellowship groups, etc., etc., etc. I don't really care what you call it. And that's not a pun on care ministry. I don't really. It doesn't matter. As long as you're applying the principle according to the word of God. That's the only thing that matters. Expanding our ministry to include meeting in homes is the key to effectively caring for building relationships with newborn child of God and is the most effective method of evangelism in this hour. Let me tell you something I learned when I visited Cho's church in 1986, I think it was. He explained to us that this was his, his care group leader's method of evangelism. Many, many, many high-rise apartment buildings in the Seoul area. And he would have any number of care groups in that building. 
And the, the care group leaders and other people in the group would go door to door in those apartment complexes. And they wouldn't invite them to the care group, the cell group. They wouldn't invite them to church. They'd just simply say, we have a regular prayer meeting in my uh, apartment, and we just wanted to know if there's anything you needed us to pray for uh, because we'd, we'd, we'd be happy to pray for you, that thing. Many, many, many times, most of the time, in fact, people would say, yes, could you pray for this? Could you pray for that? And so that leader or that cell member would go back to the group and they would make a request for that situation. Everybody would pray for that request. And they would pray for it for a few weeks until they felt some direction of God and then someone from the group, usually the person that actually knocked on that door, would go back and talk to that person and say, you know, we've been praying for your situation. How's, how's it going? And he said so many, many times that when they went back to the door, that situation had so dramatically changed, those people were so excited that when they shared their testimony of what had happened, and that person that it was visited them and made the prayer request invited them to come and fellowship with him in their home. They almost never turned them down. That was their primary method of evangelism. Now, I'm not saying that's all we should do, but that's a pretty good idea, isn't it? We do door-to-door visitation. Well, and I can remember my little speech from... 42 years ago. Hello, I'm Pastor Chester Wright of the First United Pentecostal Church of Annapolis, Maryland. I wanted to stop by and invite you to our services. Have you ever been to a Pentecostal church? And then hopefully they would say no and I could begin to preach to them a little bit. I stopped by, not to see if they had a need, not to see if there's anything I could pray for, but to invite them to a church service. And then I had many times had to debate them over their doctrine versus us, even get them to consider to come to a church service. How different would it have been if I would have knocked on their door and said, you know, I'm a pastor of a local church here, and we, we're really concerned about our community. And we just wanted, I just want to stop by today uh, to see if there's anything any need you may have that our church can pray for you for. And if we'd have gone and taken the people we had and prayed and God would have worked miracles, I wonder what the difference would have been in many of their responses when they walked in our building for the first time after they'd experienced the effectiveness of our prayers and the ability of our God to answer prayer. I wonder how different it would have been. I don't believe it's wrong to build a crowd. Jesus preached to multitudes. He loved the multitudes. The Bible says that. But I wonder what would happen if we balanced all of that out with a completely different approach. Because primarily, when Jesus was dealing with individuals, he would meet their needs before he would ever share his doctrine. I wonder. I wonder. This has been a very
enjoyable time for me in sharing these things with you. Knowing how I felt when I heard some of them for the first, second, third, fourth, fifth times as God was talking to me. It may not have been enjoyable to you, but I hope it's been edifying whether it's been enjoyable or not. I've invested this time in prayer and study and experience and sitting here ministering to you on this subject because I believe in this with all my heart. I believe this is absolutely the will of God. I believe these principles are New Testament apostolic church principles. And I believe it's God's primary method for help reaching and holding the results of an end-time apostolic worldwide harvest revival. I believe there are going to be services in the end time where, as there have already been in places in this world, where thousands and thousands of people are going to receive the Holy Ghost. But all of that result is going to be wasted if the church doesn't have in place the ability to take care of them. All of us have heard about the great revivals where tens of thousands of people receive the Holy Ghost in Ethiopia. But I also happen to know this about all that. That meeting place was in the middle of no place. There wasn't any villages around. They weren't trying to reach anybody from those villages. All of those people that came to that meeting came there with somebody. People from all over the country that were a part of the church had been witnessing the people. In many cases teaching Bible studies to them. And they they invited the, the, those people to come with them to this meeting. Many times those sinners rode the bus for hours and hours and hours, some of them days and days, just to get to this meeting. The facilities weren't great. Water supply was limited. Sanitary facilities were limited. Food was limited. There was nothing there to do but go to church. And yet, Tens of thousands of people receive the Holy Ghost year after year in those services. In fact, there are services that's purported over 100,000 people receive the Holy Ghost in one service. But they didn't walk in off a street. They didn't come because it was a concert. They didn't come because of crowd building stuff. And again, I'm not opposed to building the crowd as long as that's not all you do. But these people that prayed through in that meeting, all that great outpouring, were a result and a product of the concepts and the principles that I've been teaching in these 10 sessions. And we can look at that and say, oh, that's awesome. We want to have thousands get the Holy Ghost. We'll lay the foundation. I personally participated in a three-day crusade in Lusaka, Zambia in 1995. Myself and 14 others from the church went over to work with Brother Ted Grossbach, who's out of our church. He was a missionary in Zambia at the time. And we there was much planning done, and he had promoted throughout the country that if you teach a center of Bible, Bible study, we will pay yours and the sinner's way on the bus from wherever you live to Lusaka to the crusade. We knew that some of those folks were going to come and wouldn't come to the crusade. But we also knew 
that the people that did come were going to be connected to somebody. And that if we could help them pray through, they would go home with somebody and they would be taken care of. Because the people that were invited to come had been in a Bible study. Not just attended a church service. And in three days, I personally witnessed 2,252 people receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And that's an awesome number. That's a wonderful number. But all of the, that n- number was a product of the seed sown that was watered and nurtured in the concept I've talked to you about today. Brother Grossbach has preached care ministry, cell ministry, home fellowship groups in nations all over Africa. Every nation he was in as a missionary, one of the main things he did was get care groups established in that nation. And you may not have heard of it, but the results were amazing. Thousands and thousands of people. Church, the church would grow from, from hundreds to tens of thousands in just a matter of a few years. And churches were started out of care groups. They were started in villages where there was no church and no preacher. All because of this concept. A Bible study can, can become a care group. A care group can become a preaching point. A preaching point can become daughter work. A daughter work can become a full-fledged church. All through that process, if we just give it an opportunity. Again, thank you for taking the time to sit through all of this. Thank you for listening to it. Thank you for not holding the things I've said to you that might not have set well against me. In Jesus' name, I speak that by faith in advance. Thank you for your prayer, and I thank you in advance for being spiritually noble enough like the Bereans to go back to the book for yourself, study it for yourself, and not make any decisions pro or con until you've seen it for yourself in the book. If you'll do that, then all of my time has been well spent. God bless you. Love you. Appreciate you. Thank you for taking the time with this. In Jesus' name.